Feeling that winter chill? Want to keep America great still? Visit buytrumpstuff.today. Check out the latest arrivals and winter apparel to keep you warm and liberals crying. Exciting new Stop the Steal tees are now available. Patriotic scarves, knitted hats, and limited edition ornaments that may never be seen again. See all the apparel, novelty, travel, and protest gear at the website buytrumpstuff.today. That's buy, B-U-Y, trumpstuff.today, a proud sponsor of Last Scout Radio Network. Never miss a thing. Come to lastscoutradio.com. It's the bunker for all things Last Scout Radio. Find out what's hot. Find out what's on Twitter, YouTube, DLive, BitChute, wherever Last Scout Radio Network is broadcasting. Also find out how to contribute using PayPal and Patreon. We'll see you over at LastScoutRadio.com. You're tuned in to Atomic Biscuits. I'm your host, Bakfa, and this is episode 2021-0208, Nuclear Footballs. As we move into the week after the sum of all fears, we cast our eyes to the coming week full of champeachment, forbidden knowledge, and hunkering down. For 80 million Americans living outside the matrix and allies around the world whose eyes are open to globalist control, we come to see how deeply enmeshed in our world they've become. We become slaves on a plantation that are kept on subsistence, picking and planting and made to care for our own as best we can, while the masters of the universe buy and sell and trade properties on the monopoly board. It's important to realize that we outnumber them by a lot, and that if we simply stand up, we'll upset the game board. To disrupt, we cannot comply. Those who are awake also know how deeply entwined the families of media, politics, and money are, a blood chain of corruption propelling war and trafficking, bankrolling all sides of conflict, promoting conflict, and profiting devilishly from the chaos and pain they bring to our world, commoditizing flesh and guns and drugs and debt and fear. Evil walks the earth. It always has. But as we pray and seek peace as our prize, God will guide us during uncertain times and direct us to be His work to counter the foe. Put on the whole armor, sharpen your steel, and prepare your family for the road ahead, and then do as the Master commanded to the storm, be still and listen. Atomic batteries to power. Turbines to speed. Ready to move out.
This story comes to us from The Daily Caller. That's dailycaller.com exclusive. Here's how the RNC plans to handle Trump's impeachment trial. This is by Henry Rogers and dated February 7, 2021. The Republican National Committee, the RNC, has a list of plans for pushing back on former President Donald Trump's impeachment trial when it begins Tuesday, according to information obtained by the Daily Caller. The RNC will use social media, their media affairs team, and their communications team to reach out to voters to explain why they believe trying to impeach Trump is unconstitutional. The RNC's rapid response team will focus on sending out fact checks throughout the impeachment trial. The RNC's media affairs team will book legal experts and members of Congress for TV appearances to put pressure on Democrats in battleground states. The social media team will share their message through Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Quote, at a time when our nation needs unity above all else from its leadership, Democrats continue to sow division in our country. As Democrats choose to put politics over people, Republicans will continue to prioritize the issues that matter most, like combated, combating COVID, opening our schools, distributing vaccines, and fighting to get Americans back to work. RNC Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel told the caller when asked about the impeachment trial. In order to convict Trump in the Senate, Democrats will need 17 Republican senators to side with every Democrat. Members were sworn in for trial on Tuesday. The arguments will start the week of February 8th. That's today, Schumer announced. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said Tuesday that he believes Trump will be convicted, but left open the possibility of having him censured if things go sideways for Democrats. Well, here's the thing. We, we got to see Liz Cheney over the weekend talking about how Trump has no place in the GOP, has no role of leadership, and basically has beat out anyone who is a Trumper and said that uh, there's no place for Trumpism in the GOP. So do we really want the RNC defending the president, or does he really need to stand on his own? There have been a fork in the road presented about how to defend the president. Should it be based on the constitutionality of even bringing the charges, since it's meant to impeachment is meant to dislodge a sitting president or anyone in the federal bureaucracy? Or should he explain his reasoning for being at the ellipse on January 6th? I think that uh, if the right people ask the right questions, it could make for an explosive week on Capitol Hill. The next story comes to us from ZeroHedge.com. Why are so many Americans stockpiling guns, silver, and food right now? This is authored by Michael Snyder via the Economic Collapse blog. It was dated February 7th. We were told that 2021 would be the year when everything starts to get back to normal, but that hasn't exactly been the case, has it? 
just been just over a month and there is still chaos everywhere. We have seen a wild riot at the U.S. Capitol. Civil unrest has been erupting in major cities from coast to coast. Millions of people have filed for unemployment benefits. A president was impeached and a crazy ride on Wall Street made GameStop a national phenomenon. That would normally be enough for an entire year, but we're still in the first week of February. All through history, there have been crucial, critical turning points where events have greatly accelerated, and it appears that we have reached one of those turning points. In fact, this may be this may turn out to be the biggest turning point of them all. Millions upon millions of Americans can sense that big trouble is ahead. For many, it's like a gut feeling that they just can't shake. Just a few days ago, my wife met a woman from the West Coast that just moved here. This woman and her husband were desperate to leave California, and they felt very strongly they should move somewhere safe. What makes her story remarkable is the fact that my wife and I have heard similar stories from others countless times over the past 12 months. Our nation is being shaken in thousands of different ways, and so many of us can feel things that are building up to some sort of grand crescendo. So that is why so many Americans are stockpiling guns, silver, and food right now. They want to be ready for what's ahead. 2020 was a record year for U.S. gun purchases, but instead of slowing down in January, gun sales went even higher. And the inset reads, according to the FBI's National Instant Criminal Background Check, that's NCIS data, 4.3 million firearm background checks were initiated in January. That's the highest number on record and up over 300,000 in comparison to December 2020. Three of the top 10 highest weeks are now from January 2021. The National Shooting Sports Foundation's adjusted background check figure of 2 million reached by subtracting out background code permit checks and permit rechecks and checks on active concealed carry permits was a jump from its adjusted figure of 1.1 million in January of 2020. One of the biggest reasons why people feel a need to be armed right now is because crime rates have been absolutely skyrocketing. In particular, murder rates in our major cities rose by an average of 30% last year. Murder rates in nearly three dozen American cities exploded in 2020, rising 30% over the previous year, resulting in 1,200 more deaths from murder last year when compared to 2019, according to a new study examining possible connections between crime, the coronavirus pandemic, and protests against police brutality. Homicide rates were higher during every month of 2020 relative to rates from the previous year. That said, rates increased significantly in June, well after the pandemic began, coinciding with the death of George Floyd and the mass protests that followed, states a report from the National Commission of COVID-19 and Criminal Justice, NCCCJ, titled Pandemic, Social Unrest, and Crime in U.S. Cities. We've never seen an increase of that magnitude from one year to the next, and the brutality of some of these murders has been off the charts. For example, the recent murder of two women in California deeply shocked people all over the nation. 
A brother of up-and-coming rapper Uzi Marcus was arrested in California following an eight-hour standoff with police and charged with murdering two women whose lifeless bodies were captured in an Instagram live video. Raymond Weber, 29, was taken into custody by police in Vacaville at around 8.30 a.m. on Saturday and was then booked into the Solano County Jail on two counts of first-degree murder and multiple other felonies, including domestic assault. In addition to the straight-up crime we have been witnessing, endless political violence has also made some of our largest cities almost unlivable at this point. I honestly don't know why anyone would want to live in downtown Portland or downtown Seattle now. Of course, conditions are not much better in the core areas of many of our other major metropolitan areas. Meanwhile, our economy continues to be greatly shaken and recent volatility in the financial markets caused a massive run on physical silver. U.S. bullion broker Apmex warned of delays in processing silver transactions because of surging volumes. Other U.S. dealers, including JM Bullion and SD Bullion, warned customers of shipping delays of 5 to 10 days. Everett Millman of, at Gainesville Coins in Florida said they were expecting shipping delays perhaps until mid-March for some products like Silver Eagles and Silver Maples. Things have calmed down a bit after the craziness of the past few days. People are going to continue voraciously buying silver. Precious metals have been a safe haven all throughout human history, and that is especially true during high inflationary times. And as I've written about extensively, we're moving into very highly inflationary times. In addition to gold and silver, Americans have also been feverishly stockpiling food. Wise Company estimated in 2018 that Americans were buying between $400 million and $450 million worth of emergency food supplies per year. And while Wise declined to release any specific revenue figures, Ericsson tells CNBC Make It that the company saw its food sales surge by probably five or six times in 2020 amid the pandemic. In the long run, I would argue that food is more important than guns or silver because you can't eat guns or silver when you're hungry. And yes, things will eventually get that bad. Most people don't understand the specifics of what is coming, but what they do know is that they have a gnawing feeling deep inside that they can't shake that really bad things are on the horizon. I would strongly encourage you to use this current period of relative stability to get prepared for the very uncertain times that are ahead of us. Everything that can be shaken will be shaken, and our society will soon be turned completely upside down. The next article comes from Caitlin Johnston, CaitlinJohnston at Medium.com, Medium.com. Electoral politics use the same containment strategies as Alzheimer's facilities. In a high-quality dementia care facility, confused residents who are at risk of unsafe wandering are skillfully redirected away from exit doors by staff members who are trained to provide them with the illusion of freedom while still keeping them in the safety of the care home. A propaganda-addled populace wandering around trying to find an escape from its oppressors is redirected in very much the same way. If you've ever visited a loved one in a locked dementia care facility, especially near sunset, you know how agitated the people who live there can become. 
The impulse to wander and pace is very common, and depending on where they're at cognitively, they'll often demand to leave the facility at once so they can go home. When this happens, unskillful staff members will take an openly authoritarian position and tell the resident that they cannot leave and that the facility is their home now. This confrontational approach invariably leads to agitation on the part of the confused resident because in their mind they really do live somewhere else and are being told they need to remain locked in a strange place that they have no memory of. This can quickly lead to a catastrophic response that is unpleasant for everyone, especially the resident in question. A more skillful staff member will employ a very different strategy. Rather than engaging in futile attempts to persuade someone with severe dementia that they must stay and that their perception of reality is wrong, they will simply say, ah yes, right away Mr. Smith, let's go get you ready to leave. They'll take them by the hand, ask him if he wants dinner before he leaves, get him talking about his time in the army, distracting him from the thought of leaving, and letting the memory loss do the work for them. In a few minutes, Mr. Smith is happily chowing down on mechanical soft meat and potatoes without a care in the world. The fancier facilities won't even have locked doors that are immediately noticeable with, as weather and daylight permits, the Doors are left unlocked to a large enclosed garden area full of circular walkways, which eventually guide a wandering resident back indoors. The actual exit point of the facility is through a building on the far end of this large yard with a staff member at the front desk who can redirect any resident who happens to meander their way through the winding paths. This way, staff don't even need to worry about a resident who decides they want to leave. They can just say, sure thing, Mr. Smith, the door's right there, knowing he'll just wander around for a bit and come right back. Anyway, that's how electoral politics works. The public will periodically become agitated at the way their wealth and resources are being stolen from them and spent on overseas wars or the fact that they are deliberately kept poor and busy by a plutocratic system in which the relative wealth of the rich is given more political power by the relative poverty of everyone else and they are redirected. They are told, they're not told, no Mr. Smith, you are the property of the oligarchic empire. They are instead told by the skillful manipulators of the political-slash-media class, Ah, yes, Mr. Smith, you can have everything you want. Just vote for the Democratic Party right over there. And just as the facility's design intended, Mr. Smith goes out to the door to the Democratic Party, wanders around in circles for a while, then comes back inside without posing any inconvenience to the staff members who run the empire. Meanwhile, the actual exit from the abusive system is kept carefully hidden. A lot of dementia care facilities will disguise their exits by painting them to look like murals or bookshelves, like the one shown in this image. That's where fighting the propaganda machine is hidden. That's where direct action is needed. That's where a critical mass of people waking up from the manipulations and using the power of their numbers to directly force real change is hidden, cleverly disguised behind a bunch of gibberish about conspiracy theories, Russian propaganda, and extremism, with a bunch of staff members pointing the way towards a false exit that cannot ever lead to our escape. Obviously, 
Care homes are a good and necessary thing for protecting victims of Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia who can't be kept safe at home, whereas the system in which we all find ourselves in is unforgivably abusive and malignant to its core. But the psychological principles work in exactly the same way. It's much easier and far more energy efficient to give people the illusion of freedom than to tell them they are locked up against their will. If you let the people know you stand in opposition to their will, they're going to try to fight you. So it's best to pretend you're on their side and willing to give them everything they want. That's all electoral politics is. That's all the Democratic Party is. That's all we were seeing when Americans shook the earth with Black Lives Matter protests last year, while the entire establishment told them, I hear you, I agree with you, without ever actually making any changes. It's a locked facility. We are forbidden from leaving with a bunch of staff members pretending to want what we want. But the fact that the managers of the empire go to such lengths to avoid a direct confrontation with us means that they are desperately wanting to avoid that confrontation. We are not an elderly dementia patient. We are the many. They are the few. If we can ever collectively stop falling for the redirections of the circular pathways and stand and face our oppressors, they do not stand a chance, and they know it. They cannot arrest us all, they cannot kill us all, and they can. all they can do is keep us confused and distracted and hope we don't remember our true power. That's all this is. The next article I have to share with you is from CNBC.com. Yes, that's CNBC.com. This is by Jacob Pramuk. Senator Bernie Sanders opposes cutting the income cap for $1,400 stimulus checks, posted February 7th. Senator Bernie Sanders said Sunday that he opposes cutting the income threshold for receiving $1,400 direct payments in the next coronavirus relief bill, underscoring a split Democrats will need to resolve before they can pass the $1.9 trillion package. The caucus's most conservative member in Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia, has raised concern that stimulus checks as currently targeted would go to too many high-income people who did not lose their jobs during the pandemic. President Joe Biden has said he is open to negotiating eligibility for payments, which, as proposed, would go in full to individuals making up to $75,000 and couples earning up to $150,000. Sanders, a Vermont independent and chairman of the Senate Budget Committee, and some colleagues have argued Democrats should not lower the income cap. Eligibility for checks has emerged as the main sticking point within the party as it tries to pass a rescue package without Republican votes in the Senate. A single defection could sink the bill. Sanders told CNN that he supports a strong cliff for payments so it doesn't kind of spill over to people making $300,000 a year. As modeled now, the the plan would phase the checks out by 5% of every dollar a person makes above the cap to receive the full amount. And that's what I support. 
That's what I think most people understand, Sanders said, of making the payments phase out more quickly. But to say a worker in Vermont or California or any place else that if you're making, you know, $52,000 a year, you're too rich to get this help, the full benefit, I think that that's absurd. Reports have suggested Democrats could start phasing out the deposits at $50,000 in income for individuals rather than $75,000. In his committee post, Sanders will have a key role in crafting the bill and making sure it complies with the budget reconciliation process. The tool will allow Democrats to pass legislation by themselves in a Senate split 50-50. Vice President Kamala Harris will hold the, hot, the tie-breaking vote. Democrats will start to draft the aid legislation this week and hope to pass it before March 14th when key unemployment programs boosting millions of Americans expires. Along with the payments, the bill is set to include a $400 per week jobless benefit through September, $20 billion for a COVID-19 vaccination program, $350 billion in state and local government support, and $30 billion for rent and utility assistance. Biden has said he is open to changing eligibility for the payments. He stressed Friday that I'm not cutting the size of the checks. Appearing on CNN before Sanders, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen signaled she was reluctant to lower the income cap for receiving a full $1,400 payment to $50,000. If you think about an elementary school teacher or policeman making $60,000 a year and faced with children who are out of school and people who may have had to withdraw from the labor force in order to take care of them, Biden thinks, and I would certainly agree, that it's appropriate for people there to get support, she said Sunday. As part of a flurry of votes before it passed a budget re resolution on Friday to set up the reconciliation process, the Senate overwhelmingly backed an amendment to bar high-income taxpayers from receiving stimulus checks. However, the symbolic measure did not define who those high earners are. I I'm always left with, why not more? I mean, these big, these big fat numbers don't really mean a whole lot. Um, in the big scheme of things for borrowing for a corporation that's already bankrupt. This is borrowing against the future in ways that we can't possibly imagine. I mean, why not $10,000 a month? Why not subsistence incomes that pay people $1,000 a week to stay at home? There's a, there's a stimulus to the economy that encourages people to be fruitful and to work and to contribute but at some point, you have to pay the piper. The next article I wanted to share with you comes from dailywire.com. Protesters clash with cops threatened to burn D.C. during Black Lives Matter march. Hmm, D.C. rioters. This seems familiar. This is by Emily Zanotti, dated February 7th. Antifa Protesters clashed with Washington, D.C. police, disrupted outdoor diners, and threatened to burn down the city during a D.C. queer and trans Black History Month march and rally on Saturday in the latest incident of far-left violence to take place during President Joe Biden's term. The march, organized by the Total Liberation Collective and the Palm Collective, wound its way through 
Central DC delivering lectures about race, black and indigenous lives to Washington DC residents dining outdoors at some of the city's restaurants. Lectures interrupted occasionally with chants of, if we don't get it, burn it down. The group clashed several times with the police during the hours long march. A number of the clashes were caught on video and posted to social media by guerrilla journalist Brendan Gushenschwager. It's a link here to Brendan's Twitter account and some video. Although the protest was largely led by representatives of Black Lives Matter, Fox News noted that some Antifa protesters mixed in as a red and black Antifa flag could be seen carried by a group of protesters clad in black. At one point, things escalated after a black block protester shined a light into the face of a police officer who then slapped away the flashlight. The black block member retaliated and smacked the police officer, the place noted. The officer then pushed the crowd back using his bicycle. The black block protester then slaps another cop. The officer thrusts his bike even more aggressively into the crowd dressed all in black. During the tense situation, a female in the crowd tells the officer to put his face mask on. We're all here tonight because Black Lives Matter, the group announced as the protest concluded following their march through a row of restaurants, according to Fox. Despite Black Lives Mattering, black people are still dying at the hands of the police paid for by our tax dollars. Saturday night's protest was the latest in a series of anti-fascist demonstrations in major cities, a series that began just as President Joe Biden, a Democrat, took office in late January, and a series that has largely gone unnoticed by legacy media outlets. Both Seattle and Portland have occasionally seen violent protests since January 20th, Biden's inauguration day, and in some cases those protests have been aimed at Democrats. A January 20th riot in Portland targeted the city's Democratic Party headquarters, smashing through the building's windows and covering the building in anti-Biden graffiti. Late last month, anti-fascist protesters swarmed and attacked an immigration and customs enforcement facility in Portland, triggering a federal response. Agents of the Federal Protective Services confronted crowds of rioters in Portland, Oregon on January 23rd. The Daily Wire reported at the time directly confronting protesters who descended on the Portland ICE facility demanding that inmates be held within be allowed to go free. Although former President Donald Trump took heat for deploying specialized federal agents to defend a federal courthouse in downtown Portland over the summer of 2020, the Biden administration's decision to allow federal authorities to defend the ICE facility appeared to go largely unnoticed. Another Black Lives Matter rally is planned for Sunday in Washington, D.C. The next article I want to share with you comes from nypost.com. That's the New York Post. It's titled, Calls for Bank of America Boycott Grow After Data Given to FBI by Jesse O'Neill, dated February 5th, 2021. Customers are calling for a boycott of Bank of America after a report that the bank handed over the account information of hundreds of innocent people in connection with the January 6th deadly riots at the Capitol. 
At the request of the FBI, the country's second largest bank allegedly snooped through information of anyone making certain purchases in and around Washington before and after the riots and handed over the information of 211 people, according to Fox News' Tucker Carlson. Only one of those 211 people was brought in for questioning and none of them were arrested, according to Fox's report. Federal investigators reportedly asked Bank of America for information on customers who made debit or credit card purchases in D.C., reserved hotels and Airbnbs in and around the Capitol, patronized weapons stores, and made airline reservations within the time frame surrounding the attacks. Now customers and non-customers alike are calling those reported actions an overreach and taking to Twitter to announce that they're canceling their accounts and calling on others to do the same. Bye-bye, Bank of America, outraged customers boycott firm as it's revealed the bank snooped through hundreds of innocent people's accounts looking for capital rioters. So who else is doing it, one user posted. Time to get out of Bank of America, boycott them, wrote another. The customer should sue Bank of America unless there was a subpoena involved, another user commented. Bank of America released a statement Friday about the claims, We don't comment on our communications with law enforcement. All banks have responsibilities under federal law to cooperate with law enforcement inquiries in full compliance with the law. If clients reach out to us and raise concerns, we'll certainly speak to them about their concerns, Bank of America spokesman William Halden told The Post. Under the 1970 Bank Secrecy Act, financial institutions are required to cooperate with law enforcement to detect money laundering, terrorist financing, and other criminal acts. The FBI has arrested more than 170 people in connection with the breach of the U.S. Capitol and have vowed to hunt down hundreds more rioters. Five people, including a Capitol Police officer, died during the riots, and a second member of the Capitol Police and an officer with the D.C. Metro Police took their own lives in the aftermath. Police and federal authorities were woefully overmatched by violent rioters on January 6th. Then-President Donald Trump was impeached for a second time over his alleged role in inciting the riot and faces a Senate trial this week. Well, this happens all the time. I mean, I wish I could say that this doesn't happen, but all your financial institutions and all of your online life is for sale to the highest bidder. That includes the federal government. The next article comes also from the New York Post. Biden gushes about his son Hunter's new memoir in CBS interview. This is by Mark Moore, dated February 7th. An emotional President Biden fought back tears as he discussed his son Hunter's new memoir, saying, My boy's back. The honesty with which he stepped forward and talked about the problem and the hope that it gave me hope reading it, Biden said in an interview with CBS News released late Saturday. My boy's back, Biden told anchor Nora O'Donnell as he became emotional and choked back tears. I'm sorry to get so personal, he said to O'Donnell. 
Hunter has been battling addiction throughout his life and has undergone treatment in a number of rehab facilities. In 2014, he was discharged from the Navy Reserve after failing a drug test. Biden said his son's story reflects the struggles that many American families are going through. You know, I'll bet there's not a family you know that doesn't have somebody in the family that had a drug problem or an alcohol problem, the president said. Hunter, whose book will be released in April, became a target of intense scrutiny during his father's presidential campaign when The Post published a series of blockbuster reports about his dealings with Ukraine and China. Hunter introduced his father, then the vice president in the Obama administration, to a top executive at Burisma, a Ukrainian energy firm that employed Biden on its board less than a year before the elder Biden pressured government officials to fire a prosecutor who had looked into the company. Revelations were found in emails on a laptop Hunter left at a computer repair shop in Wilmington, Delaware. Hunter's business dealings in China also generated headlines during the campaign, and White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said last week that he is still untangling his investments with Bohai Harvest Equity Investment Fund Management, known as BHR. He has been working to unwind his investment, but I would certainly point you, he's a private citizen. I would point you to him or his lawyers on the outside on any update, Circle Round Saki said during her daily briefing. His continued stake in the company comes despite his father's pledge that Hunter or other family members would not be involved in any businesses or enterprises that would create conflicts with his administration. BHR is controlled and funded through the Chinese government, including the Bank of China. So he's still working on unwinding his continued stake in China while his father is the president. Now, it's, it's awesome that he was able to write beautiful things, but we already have all the inside information we need from the laptop dumps, including his cocaine habit and his predilection for all things small, just like dear old dad. The next article I wanted to share with you comes from NoisyRoom.net. There's a little bit of everything on Noisy Room. Some good stuff, not, some not so good. But this one was interesting to me. Hashtag Joe China Keystone XL Kill helps Buffett, Russia, China, and Hertz Environment. Dropped February 7th by Daniel John Sobieski. If President Trump had been colluding with Russia, the first thing he would have done would have been to cancel the Keystone XL pipeline and otherwise prevent our, our achieving energy independence. Russia was once described as being a gas station masquerading as a country. Its only commodities of value are weapons and oil. Building Keystone XL and unleashing fracking was Trump's way of screwing with Putin's ambitions, not rewarding them. We would have to wait for Joe Biden to collude with Russia on energy by banning Keystone XL and declaring war on fracking, as Helen Raleigh, writing in the Federalist, notes. 
The first executive decision that benefits Russia was Biden's executive order to rescind the permit for the Keystone XL pipeline. The Keystone project plans to build a 1,200-mile pipeline from Alberta, Canada to Nebraska, where it would join existing pipelines so 830,000 daily barrels of oil from Canada can easily reach refineries and ports on the Gulf Coast. From there, they could be exported conveniently to the rest of the world market. The Canadian company that proposed the project, TC Energy, formerly TransCanada, applied for U.S. government approval of the project in 2008 when America was experiencing one of the worst economic recessions in our nation's history. A study by the Obama administration's State Department estimated the pipeline would create 3,200 temporary construction jobs directly, 42,000 additional jobs indirectly, and generate over $2 billion in wages. In addition to economic benefits, an increased supply of oil from a friendly ally like Canada will reduce dependency on Russian oil supplies among our energy-deficient European allies. About 30% of the European Union's gas imports and 35% of its oil imports come from Russia. Germany, the largest economy in the European Union, is even more vulnerable. 36% of its natural gas imports and close to 40% of its oil imports come from Russia. Biden's decision is an insult to Canada, one of America's most trusted allies. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau expressed disappointment as the pipeline supports thousands of jobs on both sides of the border. Biden's decision rewards our enemies like Russia, China, Venezuela, and Iran and betrays our allies like Canada and Western Europe. It also rewards a benefactor and a friend of the Biden-Obama administration, billionaire Warren Buffett, who stands to make a tiny profit as his dangerous oil tank cars carry the crude the Keystone XL pipeline would have carried safely. When President Obama announced he was killing the Keystone XL pipeline, he said he was agreeing with the State Department's assessment that the pipeline from Canada would not serve national interests of the United States. The fact, that, the fact is that it would not have benefited the personal financial interests of his friend and economic mentor, Warren Buffett, who can rest assured oil from Canada and the nearby Bakken Formation in North Dakota will continue to be transported by a railroad he owns. As Investors Business Daily noted in a 2011 editorial, killing the Keystone XL pipeline may help one of the world's richest men get richer. North Dakota's booming oil fields will now grow more dependent on a railroad the president's economic guru just bought. As oil production ramps up in the Bakken fields up North Dakota, plans to use the pipeline to transport it have been dashed. As a result, North Dakota's booming oil producers will have to rely on more have to rely more on the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad, which Buffett just bought, to ship it to refineries. Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway has agreed to buy Burlington Northern Santa Fe in a deal valuing the railroad at $34 billion. Berkshire Hathaway already owns about 22% of Burlington Northern and will pay $100 a share in cash and stock for the rest of the company. When President Obama was first running for office, he publicly declared that Warren Buffett was his prime source for economic advice, as CNBC noted in July 2008. 
Barack Obama calls on Warren Buffett, among others, as he turns his attention to the troubled U.S. economy now that he's returned from his international tour that featured a well-attended speech in Berlin. In an interview with Tom Brokaw on NBC's Meet the Press over the weekend, Obama said that today he would be pulling together some of his core economic advisors to examine the policies that we've already put forward, a middle-class tax cut, the second round of stimulus, an effort to shore up the housing market in addition to the bill that was already passed through Congress, what we need to do in terms of energy and infrastructure. President Obama launched an endless review process that kicked the Keystone XL oil can down the road until he was ready to kill it. A non-suspicious interval of time has elapsed after economic mentor Warren Buffett would buy the railroad that would replace Keystone XL. So how did Buffett do on his investment and did he profit from the buddy Obama's delaying and then killing the pipeline? Some would say handsomely. As Forbes reported last year, his company, Berkshire Hathaway, purchased Burlington Northern Santa Fe for $34 billion four years ago. Forbes estimates its value has doubled since then. Part of the reason, hauling oil out of the Bakken formation of North Dakota. Doubling a $34 billion investment in just four years is huge. Warren Buffett is a respected investor, but it doesn't hurt to have the ear of the president as he kills off your competition in oil transport. As Investor's Business Daily editorialized in January, Keystone XL would bring up to 830,000 barrels of oil per day and directly create 20,000 truly shovel-ready jobs, and it would not only uh, it would not only it would carry not only Canadian oil but also oil from the Bakken Shale Formation in North Dakota. Even if it carried only Canadian oil to foreign markets, it and the Gulf Coast refineries that would process the oil would be operated not by robots but by American workers. Would President Obama rather live in a world dependent on oil from North America or on oil from the Middle East and OPEC? President Obama said these would only be temporary jobs, but so are the infrastructure jobs he favors. Building a bridge creates jobs, but are they temporary because the bridge will eventually be completed? The workers will simply move on to the next project. So will the Keystone XL workers, particularly if we remove the restrictions on an animus toward fossil fuel development. How could it not benefit our national economic and security interest? With a proposed link-up with the booming production in North Dakota, North American energy independence would be assured forever. If we also lifted the ban on exporting crude, the geopolitical stage would experience a seismic shift felt from Riyadh to Moscow as North American crude and liquefied natural gas offered countries a source immune from Middle East eruptions. Sure, gasoline prices have fallen, but largely due to another technology President Obama and his environmentalist base opposed, also for alleged environmental reasons, hydraulic fracturing or fracking. When they go up again, and they will, wouldn't it be nice to keep our petrodollars here at home? According to the State Department reviews on Keystone XL, the pipeline project would likely have less impact on environment than the plan Biden than the plane Biden flies around in. As investors Business Daily noted, Keystone XL would not affect greenhouse gas emissions in any meaningful way. The State Department also found it very unlikely that the pipeline would affect water quality in any of the four aquifers through which it crossed. 
It also concluded that along one part of the proposed route, in the case of a large-scale oil spill, these impacts would typically be limited to within several hundred feet of the release source and would not affect groundwater. There would be no greater danger than that posed by any of the more than 50,000 existing miles of safely operating pipeline already crisscrossing the United States, including Nebraska and the Galala Aquifer. As the Heritage Foundation notes, the earlier State Department approval concluded that the pipeline posed a minimal environmental risk to soil, wetlands, water resources, vegetation, fish, and wildlife, and creates fewer greenhouse gas emissions. Keystone XL also met 57 specific pipeline safety standard requirements created by the State Department and the Department of Transportation's Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration. The claim that the oil Keystone XL would transport would be extracted in environmentally dangerous ways was shot down by the, wait for it, State Department, which found that the oil would be extracted anyway and sent elsewhere, perhaps to China. He, Obama, has run out of excuses after yet another State Department review released Friday found that the project would have no real impact on climate change because the Canadian crude it would transport is going to be extracted from the oil sands if Alberta, in Alberta whether it's built or not. The review found that the approval or denial of any single project is unlikely to significantly affect the rate of extraction of the oil in the oil sands or the refining of heavy crude on the U.S. Gulf Coast, a State Department official told reporters Friday. The oil will be extracted whether Keystone XL is built or not. Pipeline itself, which will also carry Bakken crude from North Dakota, will create tens of thousands of high-paying union jobs. According to the American Economic Forum, the seven-year delay on Keystone XL has already cost the American economy $175 billion in lost economic activity. The 830,000 barrels of crude per day from the oil sands of Alberta, Canada will be produced anyway, so no carbon savings there. Canada has already said if their oil is not allowed to flow south, it will flow west to tankers ready to take it to a waiting and energy-hungry China. China is also building, building a coal-fired plant big enough to power San Diego each week as the Obama administration declares war on coal. Make no mistake, Canadian Natural Resources Minister Joe Oliver said in a recent speech at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, Canadian resource development and export, including from the oil sands, will continue, keystone or no keystone. Growing economies like China and India are going to need energy and Canada will sell it to them. This is another quid pro quo involving Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, and China. Joe Biden once said a rising China should be welcomed. Warren Buffett's oil tank cars will generate more pollution and death than the Keystone XL pipeline ever could. A State Department analysis released in June 2014 rejected the Keystone XL pipeline project and said it would result in 2,947 injuries and 434 deaths as oil companies shipped their oil by other means, including rail, that are demonstrably less safe than pipelines.
The June State Department analysis cites a recent series of oil train disasters, including one derailment near Lynchburg, Virginia, that leaked some 30,000 gallons of crude into the James River. In May 2014, six cars of a 100-car Union Pacific crude oil train derailed just west of LaSalle, Colorado, spilling their contents into the countryside. These derailments weren't deadly, but some are. In July 2013, a train loaded with North Dakota crude derailed and burned in the Quebec town of Lac Megantic, 130 miles east of Montreal. The accident created an inferno of burning crude, killing 47 and incinerating the downtown area. Castleton, North Dakota, population 2400, recently had a near brush with tragedy after a train of tanker cars carrying crude oil derailed just outside town, resulting in fiery explosions and spilling 400,000 gallons of oil into the surrounding area. Had it derailed in the city center, it would have been a major catastrophe. The danger of rail shipments from Bakken is heightened by the fact that Bakken crude is more flammable than other crude, according to the Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration, the PHMSA. The no-action alternative of rail is a misguided plan. Former PHMSA head Brigham McCown is quoted in the Washington Free Beacon. Pipelines have proven themselves to be a safer, more environmentally friendly, and more cost-effective, and being more cost-effective than the alternative. Environmentalists who claim that the Keystone XL pipeline from Canada represents an unprecedented environmental threat, ignore that the pipeline would pose no greater danger than the more than 50,000 existing miles of safely operating pipeline already crisscrossing the United States. A 2012 study from the Free Market Manhattan Institute said train spills 33, trains spill 33 times more than pipelines. The evidence is so overwhelming that railroads are far less safe than pipelines, says Charles Embinger director of Brookings Institution's Energy Security Initiative. And isn't it curious that as Joe makes war on American energy, his son makes millions working for a foreign energy company, Ukraine's Burisma. Apparently, their energy development doesn't facilitate climate change or pollute the environment. And just where does John Kerry think the aviation fuel for his private jet comes from? Reach. 
stop by Last Scout Radio's Patreon page. That's Choctaw LSR Radio. Log in, select membership level, and give what you can. Choctaw will appreciate your contributions. There are different levels. Check out his channel and all the other great stuff that you can find only here on Last Scout Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to permit to the extent that it's in my control. And no official of my administration, whether his rank is high or low, civilian or military, should interpret my words here tonight as an excuse to censor the news, to stifle dissent, to cover up our mistakes, or to withhold from the press and the public the facts they deserve to know. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumor is printed, no secret is revealed. No president should fear public scrutiny of his program, for from that scrutiny comes understanding, and from that understanding comes support or opposition, and both are necessary. I am not asking your newspapers to support an administration, but I am asking your help in the tremendous task of informing and alerting the American people, for I have complete confidence the response and dedication of our citizens whenever they are fully informed. I not only could not stifle controversy among your readers, I welcome it. This administration intends to be candid about its errors, for as a wise man once said, an error doesn't become a mistake 
until you refuse to correct it. We intend to accept full responsibility for our errors, and we expect you to point them out when we miss them. Without debate, without criticism, no administration and no country can succeed, and no republic can survive. That is why the Athenian lawmaker Solon decreed a crime for any citizen to shrink from controversy. And that is why our press was protected by the First Amendment, the only business in America specifically protected by the Constitution, not primarily to amuse and entertain, not to emphasize the trivial and the sentimental, not to simply give the public what it wants, but to inform, to arouse, to reflect, to state our dangers and our opportunities, to indicate our crises and our choices, to lead, mold, educate, and sometimes even anger public opinion. This means greater coverage and analysis of international news, for it is no longer far away and foreign, but close at hand and local. It means greater attention to improved understanding of the news, as well as improved transmission. And it means, finally, that government at all levels must meet its obligation to provide you with the fullest possible information outside the narrowest limits of national security. And so it is to the printing press, to the recorder of man's deeds, the keeper of his conscience, the courier of his news, that we look for strength and assistance, confident that with your help, man will be what he was born to be, free and independent. I also wanted to point you towards this article at thegatewaypundit.com. Biden is following in the same economic footsteps as Jimmy Carter. Inflation, here we come. When Jimmy Carter came into power, inflation was 5.7%. By the time he left, inflation more than doubled to 13.5%. Now Joe Biden appears to be going down the same track. Massive government spending and a stimulative monetary policy was the heart and soul of the Carter regime, and now Biden's regime is working on doing the same. Last year, the annual inflation rate was less than 1%, but Biden's policies are likely to increase inflation significantly. In energy, the, ca the cost of gasoline increased under Carter significantly, and this is due to happen under Biden. It will help Russia and the Middle East, and not America. Biden is pushing a $15 minimum wage, which will lead to a massive increase in costs. In addition, an increase in regulations and taxes will add to higher prices for all Americans. There's a video here that summarizes what's going on. I encourage you to come over here and check it out at thegatewaypundit.com. You'll find the next article over at aljazeera.com. Haiti President alleges attempted coup amid dispute over term. Haitian government authorities have said they foiled an attempt to overthrow President Jovenel Moise, who is facing mounting anger from opposition leaders and the Haitian public over when his mandate ends. Justice Minister Rockefeller Vincent said an attempted coup d'etat took place on Sunday while authorities said 23 people had been arrested, including a Supreme Court judge and senior police official. 
I think my head of security at the palace, the goal of these people, was to make an attempt on my life, said Moisey, who was expected to address the nation on Sunday afternoon. That plan was aborted. Earlier in the day, Moisey had brushed off criticism from the opposition and human rights groups who say his presidency expires on Sunday. Moisey, who's been governing without any checks on his power for the past year, has insisted his term ends on February 7, 2022, an interpretation of the country's constitution that has been rejected by the opposition. The next 12 months will be focused on reforming the energy sector, carrying out the referendum, and organizing elections, he tweeted on Sunday morning. Protesters calling for Moisey to step down clashed with police in the capital Port-au-Prince on Sunday afternoon. Police fired tear gas to disperse the demonstrators. Meanwhile, top legal experts denounced the detention of the Supreme Court judge, Wilner Morin, president of the National Association of Haitian Magistrates, told local media outlet Aibo Post that it was an illegal arrest. Al Jazeera's Manuel Rapallo, reporting from Mexico City, said things appear likely to remain tense in Haiti as opposition leaders are asking for the detainees to be freed, including the Supreme Court judge. And there are calls for more protests against the president, and the opposition has vowed to continue to pressure the government of Jovenel Moise, Rapallo said. The dispute over when Moisey's term ends stems from his original election. He was voted into office in a 2015 poll later canceled on grounds of fraud and then elected again a year later in 2016. But Moisey was only sworn into office on February 7, 2017, and he and his supporters say that since his mandate only began on that date, it ends in 2022. After the latter disputed election, demonstrations demanding his resignation intensified in 2018. Haiti's Electoral Council postponed legislative elections indefinitely in October 2019, Human Rights Watch has reported, and Moisey has been ruling by decree since January 2020 when the legislature's mandate expired. Moisey blamed Parliament for the postponement for failing to approve an electoral law while his opponents accused him of maneuvers to hijack the process, Human Rights Watch said. Haiti's Higher Judicial Council said Moisey's presidential mandate expires this Sunday, saying it was deeply concerned by the serious threats resulting from the lack of political agreement. The Haitian Bar Federation agreed, adding in a statement shared on social media on Sunday that the Provisional Electoral Council unilaterally appointed by President Jovenel Moisey has no legitimacy to organize the next elections. Kim Eve, a journalist with Haiti Liberté, told Al Jazeera that most legal analysts and most of the Haitian people agree the president should leave office. One thing's for sure, even if he survives today, Moisey is going to be faced with huge unrest for the next year, Eve said. Meanwhile, about a dozen human rights groups recently accused the United Nations mission in Haiti of providing technical and logistical support for the president's plans to hold a constitutional reform referendum in April, then presidential and legislative elections later in the year. The United Nations must, under no circumstances, support President Jovenel Moise in his anti-democratic plans, the groups said in a letter.
The Haitian opposition also expressed anger after the United States this week recognized Moise's claim to power for another year. U.S. State Department spokesman Ned Price told reporters on Friday that the U.S. has urged Haiti to organize free and fair elections so that Parliament may resume its rightful role. Price said Washington agrees with the Organization of American States that a new president should succeed Moise when his term ends on February 7, 2022. The chairman of the U.S. House Foreign Affairs Committee, Congressman Gregory Meeks, and U.S. Congresswoman Yvette Clark urged Secretary of State Antony Blinken to reject Moise's attempt to retain power. In a letter on Saturday, the U.S. lawmakers said the time for a Haitian-led democratic transition is now. Members of the opposition have sent President Moise an unmistakable message that his term must end on February 7th. There have also been clear calls for a legitimate transitional government to be promptly established so that democratic elections can resume. The people of Haiti deserve a voice in their own governance, and the United States must extend its own voice to that critical cause, they wrote. This next story comes to us from phys.org. That's P-H-Y-S, as in physics. Phys.org titled New Quantum Receiver, the first to detect entire radio frequency spectrum, this is dated February 4th, is by the Army Research Laboratory. A new quantum sensor can analyze the full spectrum of radio frequency and real-world signals, unleashing new potentials for soldier communications, spectrum awareness, and electronic warfare. Army researchers built the quantum sensor which can sample the radio frequency spectrum from zero frequency up to 20 gigahertz and detect AM and FM radio, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, and other communication signals. The Rydberg sensor uses laser beams to create highly excited Rydberg atoms directly above a microwave circuit to boost and hone in on the portion of the spectrum being measured. The Rydberg atoms are sensitive to the circuit's voltage, enabling the the device to be used as a sensitive probe for the wide range of signals in the RF spectrum. All previous demonstrations of Rydberg atomic sensors have only been able to sense small and specific regions of the RF spectrum, but our sensor now operates continuously over a wide frequency range for the first time, said Dr. Kevin Cox, a researcher at the U.S. Army Combat Capabilities Development Command, now known as DEVCOM, Army Research Laboratory. This is a really important step toward proving that quantum sensors can provide a new and dominant set of capabilities for our soldiers who are operating in an increasingly complex electromagnetic battle space. The Rydberg Spectrum Analyzer has the potential to surpass fundamental limitations of traditional electronics in sensitivity, bandwidth, and frequency range. Because of this, the lab's Rydberg Spectrum Analyzer and other quantum sensors have the potential to unlock a new frontier of Army sensors for spectrum awareness, electronic warfare, and sensing communications part of the Army's modernization strategy. Devices that are based on quantum constituents are one of the Army's top priorities, 
to enable technical surprise in the competitive future battle space, said Army researcher Dr. David Meyer. Quantum sensors in general, included, including the one demonstrated here, offer unparalleled sensitivity and accuracy to detect a wide range of mission-critical signals. The peer-reviewed journal Physical Review Applied published the researchers' findings, Waveguide coupled Rydberg Spectrum Analyzer from 0 to 20 gigahertz, co-authored by Army researchers Drs. David Meyer, Paul Coons, and Kevin Cox. The researchers plan additional development to improve the signal sensitivity of the Rydberg Spectrum Analyzer, aiming to outperform existing state-of-the-art technology. Significant physics and engineering effort is still necessary before the Rydberg analyzer can integrate into field-testable device, Cox said. One of the first steps will be understanding how to retain and improve the device's performance as the sensor size is decreased. The Army has emerged as a leading developer of Rydberg sensors, and we expect more cutting-edge research to result as this futuristic technology concept quickly becomes a reality. Over at TheVerge.com, police in Minneapolis reportedly used a geofence warrant at Floyd protest last year. The report says Google was ordered to turn over some users' account information. This is by Kim Lyons, dated February 7th. Sounds a lot like what Bank of America did. Police in Minneapolis got a search warrant that ordered Google to provide account data on people who were near a protest that turned violent two days after the killing of George Floyd last year, TechCrunch reported. The search warrant required Google to provide account data for anyone within the geographical region of an AutoZone store on May 27, 2020, to police, according to TechCrunch. Photos of a protest outside that store two days after Floyd's death showed a man in a mask smashing the store windows with an umbrella. The Minneapolis Star Tribune reported at the time that police believe the so-called umbrella man was actually a white supremacist trying to spark violence at the protest. According to TechCrunch, a police affidavit showed Minneapolis police were seeking information about the identity of Umbrella Man, who they considered responsible for sparking violence at what had been peaceful protests. Geofence warrants, also known as reverse location warrants, allow authorities to sweep up location data from GPS, Bluetooth, and Wi-Fi from devices near a crime scene. They often pull in information from people who had nothing to do with the crime and have raised privacy concerns. A, a Florida man who used a fitness app to track his bike rides briefly found himself a suspect in a 2019 burglary when police used a geofence warrant. The man had unknowingly provided information about his location to Google, which placed him near the scene of the crime. The use of geofence warrants has increased in the past several years. In 2019, Google reported the number of such warrants it had received was up to 1,500 percent between was up 1,500 percent between 2017 and 2018, but did not provide specific numbers. The New York Times reported that Google received as many as 180 geofence warrants in one week in 2019. 
A Minneapolis resident told TechCrunch he had received an email from Google informing him that information from his account was subject to the warrant and was being given to the police. The man said he was filming the protest, not participating in it. Google did not immediately respond to a request for comment on Sunday. Folks, if you think that they wait for a subpoena, you're wrong. If you think that this is just the beginning, you're wrong. This is the way it has been from the beginning. It was always part of the surveillance state. From NumbersUSA.com comes the story, Judge Temporarily Blocks Biden Deportation Freeze. In Texas, U.S. District Judge Drew Tipton issued a 14-day restraining order on President Biden's executive order to halt certain deportations for 100 days, blocking the deportation pause after Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton challenged the rule. The order is the first setback on immigration policy for the Biden administration, which has proposed an ambitious plan to legalize approximately 11 million illegal aliens, it's probably more like 20, offer eight-year pathways to citizenship and dramatically increase refugee and temporary worker visas. Last week, the administration also issued an order that halts all U.S.-Mexico border barrier construction. As part of this unprecedented onslaught in the first week executive orders, David Prokoski, Acting Homeland Security Secretary, issued a directive on January 20th instructing authorities to focus on national security and public safety threats as well as anyone who was taken into custody after entering the U.S. illegally after November 1st halting any deportations that were already underway before November 1st. A.G. Paxton championed the victory, tweeting, Texas is the first state in the nation to bring a lawsuit against the Biden administration, and we won. Within six days of Biden's inauguration, Texas has halted his illegal deportation freeze. This was a seditious left-wing insurrection, and my team and I stopped it. The new administration argued in court that Paxton's lawsuit is unenforceable because an outgoing administration cannot contract away the power for an incoming administration. Pekoski attempted to rationalize the dangerous deportation freeze, saying it would allow the DHS to ensure that its resources are dedicated to responding to the most pressing challenges that the United States faces. That includes the immediate operational challenges at the southwest border in the midst of the most serious global public health crisis in a century. Paxton said DHS failed to consult with Texas before making its immigration policy changes, as is required per an agreement between Texas and the department. Quote here says, border states like Texas pay a particularly high price when federal government fails to faithfully execute our country's immigration laws, Paxton said last week, adding that an attempted halt on almost all deportations would increase the cost to Texas caused by illegal immigration. Like Paxton, several former DHS officials expressed alarm in recent days over Biden's orders to rescind some immigration rules. With the stroke of a pen, President Biden made this country less safe. Former U.S. Customs and Border Protection Commissioner Mark Morgan said, It's pure politics over public safety. A lot of millionaires and billionaires are telling you to go use Signal. Be aware that it has a history. Most people don't seem to be aware of this. This story from Whatfinger Video at worldnews.whatfinger.com says the story of the Signal app 
and the CIA, and it has the hashtag polybytes. You can come see it's an RT story and a video that's here. And the synopsis is the Signal app suddenly billed as the panacea to all your digital encryption woes. Now that end-to-end -end whatever is all the rage, everyone's downloading it. But before you persuade your granddad that it's the best thing since sliced bread, you might want to check out its origins. Here's a hint. There may have been some involvement from none other than the U.S. government. Don't worry, Polly Baiko can explain. Tom Simonite over at Wired.com has this article, Lawmakers Take Aim at Insidious Digital Dark Patterns. A new California law prohibits efforts to trick consumers into handing over data or money. A bill in Washington state copies the language. In 2010, British designer Harry Brignall coined a handy new term for an everyday annoyance, dark patterns, meaning digital interfaces that subtly manipulate people. It became a term of art used by privacy campaigners and researchers. Now, more than a decade later, the coinage is gaining new legal heft. Dark patterns come in many forms and can trick a person out of time or money or into forfeiting personal data. A common example is the digital obstacle course that springs up when you try to nix an online account or subscription, such as for streaming TV, asking you repeatedly if you really want to cancel. A 2019 Princeton survey of dark patterns in e-commerce listed 15 types of dark patterns, including hurdles to canceling subscriptions and countdown timers to rush consumers into hasty decisions. A new California law approved by voters in November will outlaw some dark patterns that steer people into giving companies more data than they intended. The California Privacy Rights Act is intended to strengthen the state's landmark privacy law. The section of the new law defining new, new uh, defining user consent says that agreement obtained through use of dark patterns does not constitute consent. That's the first time the term dark patterns has appeared in U.S. law, but likely not the last, says Jennifer King, a privacy specialist at the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. It's probably going to proliferate, she says. State senators in Washington this month introduced their own state privacy bill, a third attempt at passing a law that, like California's, is motivated in part by the lack of broad federal privacy rules. This year's bill copies verbatim California's pro prohibition on using dark patterns to obtain consent. A competing bill unveiled Thursday and backed by the ACLU of Washington does not include the term. King says other states and perhaps federal lawmakers, emboldened by Democrats gaining control of the U.S. Senate, may follow suit. A bipartisan duo of senators took aim at dark patterns with 2019's failed Deceptive Experiences to Online Users Reduction Act, although the law text didn't use the term. California's first-in-the-nation status on regulating dark patterns comes with a caveat. It's not clear exactly which dark patterns will become illegal when the new law takes effect in 2023. The rules are to be determined by a new California Privacy Protection Agency that won't start operating until later this year. The law defines a dark pattern as a user interface designed or manipulated with the substantial effect of subverting or impairing user autonomy, decision-making, or choice as for further defined by regulation. Hmm. Kind of like our voting system. James Snell, a partner specializing in privacy at the law firm Perkins Coey, 
in Palo Alto, California, says it's so far unclear whether or what specific rules the privacy agency will craft. It's a little unsettling for businesses trying to comply with the new law, he said. So just as an aside, they're basically writing a law that creates a new term, a legal term, that is undefined and that that term will be defined later by some panel. So a dark pattern could be anything because they don't know what might be invented yet. So clicking through the OK button at the bottom might be considered a dark pattern if, you don't, if you're not sure what you just agreed to. So if technology companies come up with something new, like, oh, well, you, you chose to click on the website from the Google search, that is, that's considered consent for us to present you with whatever you're looking at. They, they may decide, well, that's a dark pattern because it, it, it makes some assumptions that are not there. But I can just see a zillion ways where this could be abused. Any undefined term in a law is a, it's a complete landmine. Snell says clear boundaries on what's acceptable, such as restrictions on how a company obtains consent to use personal data, could benefit both consumers and companies. The California statute may also end up more notable for the law catching up with privacy lingo rather than a dramatic extension of regulatory power. It's a cool name, but really just means you're being untruthful or misleading, and there are a host of laws and common law that already deal with that, Snell said. Alistair McTaggart, the real estate uh, the San Francisco real estate developer who propelled the CPRA and also helped create the law it revised says dark patterns were added in an effort to give people more control of their privacy. The playing field is not remotely level because you have the smartest minds on the planet trying to make that as difficult as possible for you, he says. McTaggart believes that the rules on dark patterns should eventually empower regulators to act against tricky behavior that now escapes censure, such as making it easy to allow tracking on the web, but extremely difficult to use the opt-out that California law requires. King of Stanford says that's plausible. Enforcement by U.S. privacy regulators is generally focused on cases of outright deception. California's dark pattern rule could allow action against plainly harmful tricks that fall short of that. Deception is about planting a false belief, but dark patterns are more often a company leading you along a prescribed path like coercion. Here's how you can spot a zombie. Look for someone who has a corpse-like appearance, exhibits aggressive behavior, craves human flesh, and utters incoherent moans and groans. Uh, I don't know. With your help, we can prevent the zombie uprising. Okay, so we're going to start by making some some homemade hand sanitizer. But you see, I found a mixer, and then there's a lot, little piece of lime here, so we're just going to make a nice bridge. We're just going to pour a little tiny bit of alcohol in there, just a little... Just a tiny bit. Just, just keep, keep pouring it. Somebody could have found me a bigger glass. But so, uh, anyway, so, so we just keep, keep pouring it like this. This should be good. We're gonna call this a quarantine. Quarantine. We're gonna stay home and make foam. Have a wonderful evening, folks. You demonize, and then you, it, we call it the wrap-up smear. If you want to talk politics, call it the wrap-up smear. You smear somebody with falsehoods and all the rest, and then you merchandise. And then you write it, unless they see it's reported in the press, that this, 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 and this, 
So they have that validation that the press reported the smear, and then it's called the wrap-up smear. Now we're going to merchandise the press's report on the smear that we made. And it's, it's a tactic. But if I'm a corporate executive and you're a senator, and I give you IPO shares in stock, and over the course of one day, that stock nets you $100,000, that's completely legal. And former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and her husband participated in at least eight IPOs. One of those came in 2008 from Visa, just as a troublesome piece of legislation that would have hurt credit card companies began making its way through the House. Senator Joseph Biden dropped out of the hunt today, saying the disclosures about his plagiarism in law school and his exaggerations about his academic record made it impossible for him to continue. I do it with incredible reluctance, and it makes me angry. I'm angry with myself for having been put in the position, put myself in the position, of having to make this choice. The Delaware Democrat is the second candidate to be forced in the race by questions of character and integrity. Undisturbed by a potential conflict of interest, the Pelosi's purchased 5,000 shares of Visa at the initial price of $44. Two days later, it was trading at 64. Credit card legislation never made it to the floor of the House. Um, I wanted to ask you why you and your husband back in March 2008 um, accepted and participated in a very large IPO deal from Visa. At a time there was major uh, legislation affecting their credit card companies making its way through the, uh, through the House. And did you consider that to be a conflict of interest? You, you, I, I don't know what your point is of your question. Is there some point that you want to make for that? Well, I, I guess what I'm asking is, do you think it's all right for uh, a speaker uh, to accept? Uh, you get out and you get on the ground! Get up in the face of the Congress! Domestic enemies are right at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue with their allies in the Congress. Democrats are ignoring this problem. The NYPD is reporting 28 shootings from just over the weekend. That's a 600% increase. We're seeing the same thing here in Los Angeles. Our homicides have been up 32%. I applaud Eric Garcetti for doing what he's done. We've got four blocks in Seattle that you just saw pictures of that is more like a block party. We had two murders, multiple shootings, rape, robbery, assault. We need to completely dismantle the Minneapolis Police Department. We need a revolution in order to overthrow this system bring a whole new communist world into being. Fundamentally transform the country. We ain't about to wait until the next election. We about to go get that mother But it, it, it's not true. Just a quick peek uh, at stories from around the world. Uh, not only are there coups going on, we have this story, Somalia's Al-Shabaab armed group attacks hotel in Mogadishu. No, this is not an old story. This is a new story. At least three people were killed, says a security force, after a vehicle loaded with explosives crashed into the entrance gate of Mogadishu's Afrique Hotel. 
Somalia's Al-Shabaab armed group has launched a car bomb attack on a hotel in the capital Mogadishu, killing at least three people, said a security source. So far, three people, two of them civilians and a security guard, were confirmed dead, but the death toll could be higher, said Mohamed Dahir, a senior, senior official with the National Security Agency. Six civilians were wounded in the attack on Sunday afternoon, he added. Earlier, police officer Ali Hassan told DPA more than nine people, most of them civilians, were killed in the attack. A vehicle loaded with explosives crashed into the entrance gate of the Afrik Hotel near Mogadishu's strategic K4 junction. Police spokesman Sadiq Adan Ali had confirmed earlier. A number of gunmen then quickly invaded the hotel, opening fire on staff and patrons inside, he said. The blast shook us and heavy gunfire followed, said Ali Abduali, a shopkeeper in the area. Witness Ahmed Nur told Reuters, the blast made the hotel tremble as we sat inside and were talking. We were panicked, confused, adding that he escaped via a ladder down a wall. I jumped down and ran. Government forces responded to the attack and gunfire could be heard coming from the hotel. Police rescued many people from the hotel, including its owner and an army general, according to the Associated Press News Agency. Aha, so there was a target. Al-Shabaab, an al-Qaeda-linked armed group that seeks to overthrow the country's internationally-backed government, claimed responsibility for the attack through its Andalus radio station. We know they have changed nothing from their usual tactic, ramming explosives into a building and following up, assaulting with rifles, said Ali, the police spokesman. Al-Shabaab frequently carries out bombings in its war on Somalia's government, which is backed by the United Nations and African Union peacekeeping troops. In a separate incident, at least eight children were killed and many others wounded when a bomb went off in Golwin area, about 40 kilometers, that's 25 miles north of the coastal town of Merka, some 120 kilometers, that's 74 miles south of Mogadishu. Protect me and you 
Over at our friends, theepochtimes.com, comes this story. Republican Party has never been more united against socialism, freshman GOP rep says. This is by Jack Phillips, dated February 7th. Representative Madison Cawthorn, Republican from North Carolina, a freshman lawmaker, said that the Republican Party remains united against radical socialism in the midst of highly publicized spats. Our party has never been more united, Cawthorn told the Washington Examiner on February 6th, referring to questions about the GOP in the midst of Representative Liz Cheney, Republican from Wyoming, being censured by Republicans in Wyoming over her move to impeach former President Donald Trump last month, as well as Representative MTG losing her committee posts. Republicans voted to allow Cheney to keep her leadership posts, although her re-election prospects may have been imperiled. Cawthorn said that Republicans are becoming increasingly unified, despite them having differing ideological positions around fighting off radical socialism in Congress. I made a statement that I think surprised a lot of my fellow colleagues. I said, what just happened in that room tells me that the Republican Party has never been more united because we had the back of Liz Cheney and we had the back of MTG, he said. And that is because no matter the faults of either of those women, we are here to fight against something that is so evil, and both of them are fighters, and we are here to go against this radical state of liberalism that has taken root in our country. 
Cawthorn said he opposed Green being stripped of her committee assignments last week, arguing that voters in her district in Georgia elected her. If whatever is being reported about MTG is true, you know, obviously I condemn whatever those statements are, he said. They're frankly bizarre. But you know what? I am here to fight something much more evil. I'm here to fight radical socialism that's trying to take root in our country. There are people like Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Congresswoman Ilan Omar, who have said very dangerous things, he said, referring to the Democratic representatives, that there's a lot of double standard going on here in Washington. Once somebody does something after they've been elected, that puts it in a different category. Green, for her part, wrote that the move to strip her of her committee assignments is an extension of the leftist cancel culture that has crept into the American mainstream. Democrats and some Republicans criticized her after controversial comments she had made on social media before she was in office. When the Democrats and 11 of my Republican colleagues decided to strip me of my committee assignments, you know what they did? They actually stripped my district of their voice. They stripped my voters of having representation to work for them, she said on February 5th. Well, speaking of districts, you've got people all over the world who are complaining about votes and being stolen and all that kind of stuff. They're holding up three fingers as if they're part of the Hunger Games. Maybe we are. Um, and, of course, I use MTG as a uh, an abbreviation because last week we, we found ourselves with a tag on the YouTube video simply for covering her story. No matter what your feelings are, about the way things are going, we certainly are living in a new surveillance state that cancels out some voices. My encouragement to you, get on Gab, don't stop talking, work local, eat fresh, avoid commie tech. See me over at backfa.us, check us out at the main website over at lastscoutradio.com. Anytime you're curious about where we're going to be and what we're going to be, uh, what sort of platform we're going to be on and what's playing, go to lastscoutradio.com and check it out. I want you to have a good week. Looking forward to seeing what's going to be happening with this impeachment. You can find me on Gab almost all the time commenting on what's going on in the world and everything to do with the bread and circuses of America. I'll see you next week on another episode of Atomic Biscuits. So long, everybody. As the silencing continues on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and other leftist platforms, you can find me and all the gang from Last Scout Radio Network over at lastscoutradio.com. 
Tune in to my show, 8 p.m. Eastern, every Monday, Atomic Biscuits, where we look critically at the headlines and decide exactly what the real story is. Bread and circuses for America, that's what I'm interested in, knowing what's truth and what's theater. Join me, BACFA, at lastscoutradio.com and for Atomic Biscuits every Monday at 8 p.m. I'll see you there.